it's not uncommon that we receive a phone call from the emergency department about a patient who's, quote, recently given birth and is found to be hypertensive with a headache. And the call usually goes something like this. Hey, Dr. Chaba, there's a lady down here. She delivered about four weeks ago, and she had some severe pressures, but I'm going to give her some antihypertensive meds and then send her home because she's already about four weeks postpartum. So that's okay, right? Well, is that okay? Well, the answer is likely no. Remember that postpartum morbidity and even mortality can occur beyond the first four weeks to six weeks and extend up to the first 12 weeks postpartum. That's why ACOG has defined the first three months after delivery, the, quote, fourth trimester. Well, this is reflected in the newly revised CMQCC guidelines on postpartum hypertension. Well, what is CMQCC? That's the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. They've done great work in forming these bundles for both postpartum hemorrhage, preeclampsia, and other high-risk maternal conditions. So I thought in this podcast, well, mainly because I just received a phone call yesterday about a postpartum hypertensive patient that they were going to send out, and review this information on delayed postpartum preeclampsia and eclampsia and its management. Because remember, We can't get fooled that just because she's escaped the first 48 hours or the first week postpartum that she's in the clear. So let's cover delayed postpartum preeclampsia and eclampsia because the ER is usually first to present it. We're going to cover this as an ER presentation patient. New onset hypertension in the postpartum period should be assumed to be preeclampsia until proven otherwise. And the treatment of postpartum preeclampsia is generally the same as treatment of antepartum cases, with the exception of the use of some antihypertensive medications that are not typically used during pregnancy. The term delayed postpartum preeclampsia is defined as hypertension that begins two or more days after childbirth in women who did not previously have hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The diagnostic criteria for delayed postpartum preeclampsia are the same as for preeclampsia prior to delivery. Newly elevated blood pressure in a previously normotensive postpartum woman should not be attributed to a lack of sleep or stress or pain. An elevated blood pressure should be evaluated thoroughly and no differently than in the antepartum setting. New onset hypertension should be assumed to be preeclampsia until proven otherwise. Yeah, I know I said that twice because it's so vital to recognize and be ready for this diagnosis so we don't miss it with its accompanying morbidity. Remember that the risk of sequelae like stroke from severe hypertension is unchanged in the postpartum state, and so it has to be addressed with the same urgency as with antepartum and intrapartum severe hypertensive emergencies. Well, nothing like starting off the information with a devastating fact. Well, here it is. According to the data, among women who died from pregnancy-related causes, two-thirds received care in an emergency department at some time in their prenatal or postpartum period, with nearly 40% having more than two visits to the ED. 
This is especially an issue in the postpartum interval. See, if a patient goes into the ED and they're pregnant, they're likely going to trigger a call to some OB on-call provider, and that's great. It's that postpartum interval where people tend to drop their guard. I mean, overall, I mean, after all, she's delivered already, right? But that's when these complications and these mortalities can occur. So remember, among women who have died from a pregnancy-related cause, two-thirds received care from an ED, with up to 40% having more than two visits. Now, even though we said that we were basically going to focus like it was an ER presentation, the truth is we can diagnose postpartum preeclampsia anywhere, even at the postpartum visit. So it's not so much the clinical setting where this happens. It's just recognizing that the morbidity with postpartum hypertension is still real. Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are one of the leading causes of maternal morbidity and mortality. While there's been an overall decrease in the frequency of eclampsia, the frequency of postpartum and delayed eclampsia has actually increased, making it more common for patients to present to the ED with symptoms or to the clinic for their regular postpartum check and having this as a new diagnosis. One of the great points for education for anybody working in the emergency or acute care setting or even in a clinic setting is that the critical or trigger blood pressure in pregnancy and postpartum is the same. It's 160 over 110. These values are typically lower than values used to define hypertensive emergencies in non-obstetric patients. That's why the ER, especially if the patient is, you know, four weeks or six weeks postpartum, is more apt to just write them for antihypertensive meds and send them on their way because it's below what they consider to be a true hypertensive emergency. But that 160 to 110 value still remains even in the postpartum interval as the trigger point for intervention. Well, let's get right into it with some very important points to consider. And remember, up to 26% of eclamptic seizures occur beyond the 48-hour postpartum mark and can happen as late as four to six weeks after delivery. However, most eclamptic seizures do occur within the first seven days after giving birth. As many as 78% of postpartum patients actually have no previous diagnosis of hypertensive disease with the antecedent pregnancy, so this absolutely can occur de novo in the postpartum interval. 50% of patients with gestational hypertension will move on to develop true preeclampsia either during the pregnancy or even in the postpartum interval. While the clinical presentation of delayed postpartum preeclampsia may be atypical, the most common and reproducible complaint is headache that occurs in about 69% of the cases. Now, of course, headache in a recently pregnant patient may likely be just an isolated finding, but it should prompt an investigation into the possibility of delayed postpartum preeclampsia. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
as women's health care providers, it's our job also, of course, and I've said it before, to be educators. So we should educate anybody who works in an acute care setting or in the emergency department or in one of these freestanding ERs that the initial role is to bring that blood pressure down below that 160 over 110 mark. First-line agents still are the same as labetalol, hydralazine, or nifedipine, and seizure prophylaxis with mag sulfate should begin for these severe criteria for any patient who presents up to the first six weeks postpartum until a full evaluation can be done. Now, here's something that, to be honest, I totally had forgotten because I think I learned it like years ago, but poof, it went out of my memory. And so it was good to refresh this, and it's actually in the CMQCC toolkit. A quick word when we're talking about first-line treatments about methyl dopa. Methyl dopa should be used with caution because of its increased risk for depression, especially in this postpartum state when they're already at significant risk and then they're in the hospital. That's another factor. So methyl dopa does actually increase the risk of postpartum depression. Who would have thought about that? So remember, if you're going to use that, and to be honest, there's so much better meds than methyl dopa, but... You know, if you want to use it, that's fine. But if you're going to use it, patients should undergo more frequent assessment for postpartum depression. And that's a clinical pearl. Now, remember this number because this is just frightening to me. Most maternal deaths, about 60 to 80 percent, that result from preeclampsia are a result of hemorrhagic stroke. So it's important to recognize the early symptoms or signs of a stroke if they present to your clinic in a standalone ER or your hospital emergency department. Select patients presenting with acute ischemic strokes may be eligible for a tissue plasminogen activator and mechanical thrombectomy. Strokes should be considered part of the differential diagnosis when evaluating a pregnant or postpartum woman with recent onset neurological deficits, particularly in the setting of severe range blood pressures, the presence of severe features of preeclampsia, or following an eclamptic seizure. Now, we have to clarify an important issue here, and it's this topic of seizures or eclampsia. Now, remember that there's certain time ranges or time frames when this is more common. Obviously, after 20 weeks of pregnancy, when the diagnosis of preeclampsia can be made, and within the first six weeks postpartum. Remember that seizures in the first and early second trimesters under 20 weeks and those that occur well into the postpartum period are kind of atypical or rare for preeclampsia because it's out of the typical time zone. And these are likely due to CNS pathology and they warrant full evaluation. This includes cerebral imaging, lumbar puncture if the suspicion is there for meningitis or a concern for hemorrhage exists and determination of any potential electrolyte deficit that could cause seizures. It's also important to remember your serum toxicological screening, or UDS, urine drug screen, because there are some substances that can make women seize outside of hypertensive disorders in and of themselves. Do not overlook other neurological causes of seizures, particularly if the seizure occurs more than 48 hours after childbirth. Focal neurological seizures are more concerning for acute intracranial pathology and advanced imaging is needed.
All right, I just have to do a quick aside here. Now, I love my ER friends. I really do. Thank God for them because I surely don't want to do that. But I get some weird calls, and I'm sure you do too. And if you haven't, you probably will because I've gotten stuff like, hey, Dr. Chapa, there's a 12-week pregnant patient down here, and I just witnessed an eclamptic seizure. Uh, what? No, you witness a 12-week pregnant patient who had a seizure, but it's not eclampsia. I mean, there's just weird stuff out there. And that's why it's important that we have to just stay educated, stay alert, because it's hard to keep these things in line, especially at two or three in the morning. But that's why being evidence-based and staying up on the data is so vital. No, you probably don't have an eclamptic seizure at 12 weeks. That's some other pathology 100% of the time. All right, let's get back to business. Mag sulfate is still the drug of choice for these eclamptic seizures, even if they occur up to six weeks postpartum. Oh, but of course, it's never that easy and that clear cut. Yeah, the use of mag is totally legit and unquestioned, obviously in the first 48 hours and up to the first seven days. But the data for the benefit of magnesium sulfate for seizure prevention is a lot more gray and a lot more sparse from seven days up to six weeks postpartum. So this is where medical experts can't agree. The most conservative is to give mag sulfate until you rule out other causes. However, the truth is the data is pretty scant and pretty scarce on the efficacy of mag to prevent eclampsia or to treat it after the first seven days. So again, mag sulfate, controversial between seven days and six weeks. Although there's something wrong with that, you just got to make sure that you're not going to get mag toxic where the risk of treatment is obviously greater than the benefit. But mag sulfate within the first 48 hours or the first week, no one's going to question that. There just isn't a lot of data for its use between seven days to six weeks postpartum. A quick word about imaging after an eclamptic seizure or a suspected eclamptic seizure. If it's pretty typical presentation, patients in the third trimester or within 48 hours of giving birth and she's clearly hypertensive and she has a typical grand mal seizure and there's no residual neurological deficits, then head imaging is probably low yield in that case. However, there are some providers, and I've got to be honest, that's pretty much me, who scan everybody after an eclamptic seizure because I just want to make sure I don't miss anything. I realize that's a little overkill, but I do get it. Whether I get a head CT or an MR really depends on what I'm looking for or what my clinical suspicion of pathology may be. But once again, it's not wrong to get head imaging on every patient. It's just probably super conservative. It may not be necessary in all cases. However, in a patient who has an atypical presentation of a seizure or who is beyond 48 hours postpartum and up to six weeks postpartum, then definitely do consider that imaging because there's other issues that may be at play there. And if the patient definitely has focal neurological symptoms, then get that head CT. Although remember that an MRI is the modality that's preferred if you're considering something like posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or PRES. Remember that in patients who develop postpartum high blood pressure or postpartum preeclampsia, that these patients are at increased risk for pulmonary edema and cardiomyopathy. So in patients who present in these clinical settings with low oxygen saturation or shortness of breath or dyspnea should be evaluated. That evaluation can include a BPN, 
an EKG, a chest x-ray, and even a cardiac echo, and they should be treated quickly with diuresis, and if suspected cardiomyopathy is an issue, then cardiology should be consulted as soon as possible. We have to remember the four R's as it relates to any quality improvement framework if we're going to really keep patients safe and out of morbidity and mortality circles. And it's not just about hypertensive issues. This can go for any acute maternal or any acute medical complication. The four R's are readiness, recognition, response, and reporting. That's how we win and we keep patients safe in the postpartum interval. So remember that this issue of postpartum preeclampsia isn't limited to the first 48 hours or even the first week postpartum, but patients really are in harm's way up until the first six weeks postpartum, and in some really rarer cases, extending up to the first 12 weeks postpartum or the fourth trimester. So again, we have covered the CMQCC Quality Improvement Toolkit that was just revised at the end of 2021. As always, thank you for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Mm-hmm.